if ever it comes there comes a time when we cannot agree, you have to agree with us that we 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 cannot agree. Because if we cease to to tell you what we consider is is a valid point of view, then we cease uh, we lose the right to be a sovereign country. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. We are live in studio in Washington, D.C. today on a hot summer day in Washington. And I'm Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council. Delighted to be joined by Chris Sands from the Wilson Center, our gracious host here in the <laughs> Wilson Thanks a lot, building. Scotty. It's always nice to see you here and always nice to see our guest. Always nice to see our guest. It's very exciting uh, to have His Excellency Ambassador Raymond Chrétien. Chris is going to introduce you properly, but it's nice to be together in person. You and I broke bread together a few days ago, and you've been in Washington for a few days now, so we want to get into that. But before we do, Chris, uh, maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you could introduce the ambassador properly. Sure. Well, uh, Ambassador Chrétien is a legend in so many ways. He is the only Canadian diplomat to have served as ambassador to the United States and to Mexico, so very much a, uh, a North American original. Uh, born in Shawinigan, Quebec in 1942, he obtained his law degree from the Université Laval before joining the Department of External Affairs, as it was known then. Um, and following postings in New York, Beirut, and Paris, uh, Ambassador Chrétien was named Ambassador to Zaire, which is now Democratic Republic of Congo. And at that time, I'm impressed to read, you were 36 and the youngest ambassador in Canadian diplomatic history at the time. So that was very impressive. Uh, on his return to Ottawa in 1981, Ambassador Chrétien continued his meteoric rise in the department, first as director, then assistant undersecretary, and finally as inspector general. From 85 to 1988, he was ambassador to Mexico, as I mentioned, and the Mexican government, at the end of your service there, awarded you the Order of the Aztec Eagle, which is their highest honor, particularly wow. for, for foreigners. It's, it's very impressive. My old friend Sidney Weintraub uh, won the uh, same honor, so I know how important it is. Um, then stationed at headquarters from 1988 to 1991 as Associate Undersecretary of State for External Affairs, Ambassador Chrétien was sent abroad again in 1991 to become ambassador to Belgium. Uh, before serving as Canada's ambassador in the United States from 1994 to 2000, a really pivotal period. In Washington, he played a key role in the implementation of the newly signed North American Free Trade Agreement, which we'll talk a little bit about. And I thought there was a wonderful arc to your bio because in 2000, you returned to France, this time as ambassador, and you're also the only Canadian diplomat who has been ambassador to the United States, Mexico, and France altogether. So it's a a That's a hat trick for you. It's a hat trick for you, absolutely. And uh, in 2004, you joined Faskin, the law firm, and uh, uh, we're delighted that you are here with us today. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to to be with you, Chris, uh, <laughs> and with, of course, Scotty, with whom I've worked closely in the last uh, couple of years. It's a pleasure to, to come back, not only to Washington, but to the Canada Center uh, of the Woodrow Wilson Center. As you know, I'm, we're still working together. I'm still a member of your board. For, uh, so and it has been uh, very interesting to follow the the history the, or the 
the evolution of the Canada Centre. It started, uh, I guess, in the late 1990s. It was it didn't even exist. Uh, I remember my conversation conversations with Lee Hamilton about that. I thought it was a tremendous uh, lacuna that uh, uh, Canada was not treated on the same footing uh, with Mexico. Mexico had already a, a centre, mm -hmm. and I think that uh, it was. He uh, was very interested to see that that it had to be corrected. Uh, so uh, he did correct it. I mean, the, the paternity of the, of the Canada Centre belongs to him, but I'm glad that I was, a, I guess, a positive impulse at, at the right time. And since then, you have done a great job. I follow uh, I mean, the, the, not only the history, but the participants to, 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 to the Centre, what they do, how long they stay here, their contribution to the public debate, probably more in Canada than here, although you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> so it has been a, a great success. As for Scotty, uh, same thing. I mean, I remember, I guess in 1990, it must have started in 1995 uh, at the embassy when you had your first big event. Uh, at that time, I guess uh, the chamber was trying to, to give, was giving a prize to both, uh, to a small company in both countries. And uh, our side was won by Bombardier. Not, not, no, no, the, the research in motion. Research in motion, not yes, Bombardier. The research, yes, the, that's right. Uh, Jim Balsili. And That's by right. the time he came exactly. in, in jeans and uh, he, he, these guys didn't have any much money. I mean, yeah. tremendous <laughs> success. Uh, uh, if you had been there, Scotty, I would have said, uh, invest a thousand bucks uh, with research and motion. Uh, Ten years later, it would have been worth $20 billion. You know what? That would have been very good advice at the time. And um, so this podcast that we're delighted to have you on is a collaboration between Chris Sands' operation, which is the Canada Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and our operation, which is the Canadian American Business Council. And, you know, you're on both of our advisory boards, and you're also so distinguished uh, in your public service. You also have a pretty famous uncle of course, who yeah. happened to be a prime minister. We'd love to know how he's doing. And uh, but but anyway, let's let's kick it off. Uh, you're here in Washington. We're here live uh, today, which is wonderful to be back in person. What brings you to Washington? And and how's it been? You've been here a few days. So what's it? What is the feel here? I came here essentially to participate in the uh, global meeting of the Trilateral Commission. It, it started on, I guess, Friday noon. It ended the. Yesterday afternoon, a tremendous agenda covering a broad range of, of issues, security, foreign affairs, environment, uh, the economy, health. We had Dr. Fauci with, with us for, for an hour. So after these three days, you have a pretty good idea what's going on in the world and certainly where, where the American decision makers are on, on those issues. Uh, there's always a tendency when these meetings are held in the, in the U.S. that the, the American component of the trilateral gets uh, far more uh, attention and visibility perhaps than Europeans or, 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 or the Asiatic countries or, or Mexico or Canada, but it's still useful for all of us to know where you stand. And it was a, a revelation for me to see uh, how many huge problems is faced by the administration right now. This confluence of of major crises, whether it's the uh, the pandemics, whether it's uh, the war now between uh, Ukraine and, and, and Russia, gun control issue. I mean, there's a a, a host of huge issues combined with a, a strange political atmosphere. I have to tell you that uh, following th those treaties, I was uh, surprised by uh, the view of many Republicans and Democrats in the room about how worried they were about your democracy. It worried, come, yes. It doesn't yeah. come from me, it comes from them. Worried more than I thought they, 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 they would be. So that was uh, certainly a, a key point that I Keep, I keep from that uh, from that event, but there are also, uh, I mean, uh, many others uh, on the war between Russia and Ukraine. I, I could see the, the death of the 
of the uh, of the experience of the Americans, uh, the, the tremendous facilities at their disposal to help the Ukrainians. Uh, so uh, a discussion extremely uh, useful for me for the for the months to come. So that was that's what brought me here. But also, I'm glad that the representatives of Quebec are here today. I work uh, in my job uh, at Faskin now for a, a few clients, but one of them is is the, the governor of Quebec. On the trade, on some trade policy issues, especially lumber, mm. but not only, not exclusively lumber. So that's why I'm here today for a couple of meetings with the lumber people, it's USCR, coalition, uh, and uh, tomorrow the State Department. So it's a, it'll give me a good idea of where that issue, not only that issue, but others involved in the relationship are at the moment. Well, th let's start there, Chris, if you don't mind. Just you mentioned lumber, and you have such a such a good history with Canada US. Why wasn't lumber part of the original Canada-U.S. trade agreement? Because it, it comes up. We've done several episodes on yeah, it. It's yeah. it's one of those perennial. It's been around as a trade irritant mm. for a hundred years. Long we long get time. we get we get periods of peace and managed trade. But right now we're in a. Why? Why do you remember why? I remember very well. Oh, let's yeah. hear it. <laughs> it's such an intractable issue that there was a a fear that if lumber were to be involved in those discussions, it would kill the whole thing. Really, the NAFTA or, or NAFTA. the Canada-U.S. free trade or both? Or both. Yeah. That it was such a, a difficult issue to handle, not necessarily at the time when the market conditions would have allowed for a, a resolution of that issue. So that's certainly, the, I think it's, if my memory is correct, the main reason why it was not included. I mean, a lot of people were pushing for it to be included, but a, a judgment was made in Ottawa that it would be better not to do it. And do you think, and so currently today, as we speak, uh, there is no agreement really no. Uh, in place. Do you see that being resolved or do you think we're going to continue kind of as we are for a while? Listen, I spent uh, many hours this morning talking about, uh, about lumber. Uh, whether the market conditions are there for uh, for a, a push for new negotiations, I'm not. Uh, I'm sure okay. they're, they're not there. Uh, there's no great uh, there's no great uh, interest on the part of our forestry sector. Uh, still everybody seems to be making money out of lumber right now, and so that when things go well, the incitement to start a new negotiation is is uh, is not the same. So uh, we Canadians, and I'm, I'm here on behalf of Quebec, both would like would be ready anytime to to to. But the the American side, especially the coalition, is telling us, listen, when you're ready, let us know, get your act together, and then we'll 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 talk. So the, I. Lumber is going to be resolved at, at one stage. As some say, this year, your midterm are coming so fast and the yeah. agenda is so crowded with huge issues that lumber is, is not number one, two, or three on the agenda. Right. It's probably number six or seven. And therefore, the chances of it being tackled this year, in my view, are uh, not very strong. Let me ask you that we one of our early episodes, we interviewed uh, Senator Trent Lott. Yeah. And he talked about in past softwood lumber disputes, the role that key members of Congress played in, in really trying to find a compromise or pull together a deal. Do you get the sense that Congress is engaged on this or are they too blinded by midterms to get involved? Listen, if my uh, experience is uh, meaningful for this new round of negotiations, I, I was very much involved in lumber 1996. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was a big crisis then. It took us months uh, of the industry, governments of all the provinces in the embassy to try to resolve it. And what struck me during the, the last phase of the negotiations was how often Mickey Cantor, who was then the trade negotiator, mm -hmm. was on the phone with the Hill. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. uh, this issue is always resolved with the acquiescence of the key 
members yeah. of the key states representing members. So I suspect next time around it'll be it'll be the same. It's you're probably you know w when we come to to Washington for for that kind of negotiation, we have to present the a unified front. For us, it, it's difficult because it, it's a huge issue, very different in British Columbia than it is in Quebec. So just the, the challenge of, of presenting a united front is, 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 is a big problem on our side. We manage it, but it's a great deal of difficulty. <laughs> well, I, I want to shift gears for a second um, from lumber, as, as important as it is. And you mentioned in your meetings that people from around the world are worried about American democracy. And, mm -hmm. you know, as we sit here, there are hearings on what happened January 6th, um, c Congress. So how does Washington feel to you? Because you've lived here, you've traveled here. So just kind of talk to us a little bit about your days here and what, what it's like and what does that make you think? First of all, I was here 28 years ago, so it's a long, long time ago, totally different situation. I mean, it was during the Clinton years, you remember that? strong economy, a great re political relationship at, at the top. We had always trade issues. We resolved them as the present ones will, will be resolved. But it was not uh, as divided and tense as it is now. When I arrived in Washington, uh, just uh, in the last uh, days of, of, of the previous week, I was struck by the security around. Uh, there was a just in, in the hotel where I was a number of helicopters, and then on Saturday night we were getting ready to go to, for, for dinner, and then we, the the ride we had to take instead of taking fifteen minutes took us about an hour. There was a lot of we were stopped, uh, you know, security everywhere, dogs, uh, people, machine guns, and uh, I mean I understand it's not only in the Congress now it's the White House and the Supreme Court. Right. So Washington appears to an outsider a bit like a, a city almost under siege. So. I'm not, it, stri it strikes me as as, uh, as very different. Mm -hmm. So uh, th that uh, view was uh, quite, I mean, the, I, I would not necessarily reveal all the points of view on this, but the, certainly there was unanimity that it is a, a highly stressed uh, time for you uh, and that the, the months to come are going to be even more, even more d delicate, let's put it that way. Is that well... Uh understood in Ottawa. I mean, oh, yes. I, I think the Trudeau government has been been fairly deft in reading the politics here, but but there's so many issues on the bilateral agenda and we are worried about inflation and everything else. How does it affect Ottawa's sort of strategy for dealing with the U.S. when we're so divided? Listen, um, just listening to these three days uh, of discussions, I, I could really imagine our issues, so-called Canada-U.S. issues, not getting an awful lot of high-level attention for the simple reason that there's this coalescence of big issues like the price of oil, uh, inflation, uh, the war, uh, gun control, uh, your democracy. I mean, what time does it leave to your leaders to, uh, mm. to, to pay attention to, but I, uh, to our, our issues? In my time, it was, perhaps you remember Scotty, but it was, it was easy. It was easy at the top. It was easy. I, I felt a, a, a extraordinary access that I, I could, by the way, you were alluding to Jean. I have to say something like this. I mean, my name is Chrétien, but my name is Raymond, not Jean. So when he was, he was people I, here didn't necessarily know that, though. They no, no, of course, sure. no. but I remember sure what the relationship was. I remember yeah. phoning Congress or any senator or uh, House member. Uh, this is uh, Chrétien. Oh, they all house. They thought it was the other Chrétien because we have the same voice. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever yeah, you need to use. But well, but I must tell you that to have that. Uh, that relationship, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very obviously 
favorable relationship with the, not only there's the, the the blood relationship but also the fact that I came to that job having been a, a, a deputy minister in Ottawa combination right. of both substantive policy experience with a, a, a connection at the top makes it uh, the, the the most important ingredient for a successful ambassadorship whomever sits in this job has to have a rapport with the prime minister he's the only one I wish I should say he or she but it's essentially he these days, he's the only one who can resolve the, the disputes between ministers. When, when it's time to decide which minister comes to Washington for what issue, somebody has to make that. Uh, the ambassador plays an absolutely key role in this. But if there's a problem, a conflict between ministers, ultimately, as ambassador, you can resolve most conflicts, but there are some that are so intractable that you have to tell your prime minister, listen, that's what you're elected for. Solve that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, Chris mentioned in, in his introduction of you that uh, you served in Mexico mm -hmm. as Canada's ambassador to Mexico, um, as well as serving here in Washington. And while you were at the Trilateral Commission, you know, the Summit of the Americas was happening well, in L.A. I was I was out there, there for a little bit. That's yeah. right. Uh, since I saw you last week, I've been back and forth to Los Angeles. And I'm interested in what your views are and what you're hearing in in um, your conversations about Mexico, because um, there's a feeling that the relationship is a bit fraught. There's worry that this new NAFTA that we've negotiated, the USMCA, Mexico could allow the review, the sunset to happen. And I just wonder kind of what you're thinking about Mexico these days. Ooh, I was in Mexico 1985, so it's about what I hate to say, it, but about 35 years ago. But remember, it was pre-NAFTA pre uh, days. Uh, at the time, Mexico, we're talking about trilateralism here, the, the role of Mexico, Canada, and U.S. in this, uh, in this equation. Uh, it was uh, a country uh, far more orientated towards the south as opposed to the north. Uh, there was a strong uh, nationalist uh, stance on the part of the Mexican government that was a bit afraid of of, uh, of getting too close to North America. Uh, Salinas de Gortari is the one who decided, listen, let's let's bring Mexico into the orbit of North America. He took some risk, and, and this is how ultimately NAFTA was created. I think that the Salinas de Gortari deserves a great deal of credit for for the creation of Salinas. Of, uh, Salinas. Yeah, he, that's he, funny because President Reagan, Prime Minister Mulroney, I think claim so much credit for it. But, but I'm telling you from the, from the Mexican perspective, yeah, from the Mexican perspective, not only I mean, up, façon très, from a very uh, neutral point of view, Salinas deserves some credit as okay. well. I mean, Excellent. a good idea has a thousand fathers and a poor That's idea. Right. Has, so it's, it's exactly <laughs> an example of that. Right. So Mexico from that day on, uh, and I saw it in, in Washington, I arrived here in 1994, just on the days following the, the coming into effect of NAFTA for the, for the implementation of that deal. Mm. In 94, I remember the first six months of 1994, there was a lot of uh, still uncertainty about how, how it was going to proceed. And then I saw this phenomenon of Mexico having made a call, a trade policy call, but it was a highly political call at the same time, Mexico f starting paying far more attention to the US. Mexico opening up all kinds of consulates. Uh, every time I would go to Congress to for, for a call, my Mexican colleague would be uh, waiting in the room to, to, to request a meeting for the same reason. Why are you giving the Canadians what you're not prepared to give us? So Mexico, Mexico went from 15 consulates to 50 consulates in a matter of a couple of years and became a very influential role, a uh, very inf voice and with a tremendous access to Washington, which they didn't have before. So this trilateralism has evolved since then. We have these summit 
of the Americas, but we also have these uh, summit of the three leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, I was at the Miami, the first one, the Miami summit, I guess, when I when yeah. I was here. Uh, it, it has never taken hold as I would have liked it to take hold because there are still many voices in Canada who do not like this idea of trilaterals. They say we should have bilateral discussions for us. They should have their bilateral discussions. And what is left? Yes, we can talk about it, but. Trilateralism is a never-ending kind of, of of construction. So, and what do you think about that? Do you are you a trilateralist at heart, or do you agree with? I, I am, but I I find that it, it's taking uh, it might never never happen, especially now. I mean, Mexico is highly criticized uh, for the uh, essentially the energy stance. Of course, the, there's a lot of uh, opposition to their mining legislation. Uh, President. Obrador was not in uh, was not in Los Angeles, I guess, for the right. That's right. Didn't go. Uh, so uh, he's coming to Washington. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. He to didn't see. go to the summit of the Americas. It'll be very. But he interesting. will come to Washington, and actually, I think we heard out of coming out of Los Angeles out of the summit that uh, President Biden will go to Ottawa, or there there will be a bilateral meeting of some kind. So there are some things that are happening. But when the, the three of them meet, uh, listen, it's it's strange. We still have uh, uh, the bilaterals are as important as whatever is left for the bilateral discussion. So we need to have discussion. both. We have both. Yeah. yeah. Actually, we need to have as many opportunities of that kind as we as we can organize. Listen, there's nothing that prevents uh, a big issue to advance following a game of golf uh, between our prime minister and your president. That's right. But Bill Clinton and Jean Chrétien were good buddies, good golf buddies, and that helped a lot. That helped a lot. When when I look at um, North America now, and I know we have a North American Leaders Summit that Mexico will host later this year, I see President uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador, I see President Biden, both of a very, very much of an older generation, and Justin Trudeau, much younger, person. Much younger uh, closer to our generation. Yeah. Uh, how do you think age dynamics go in terms, when, when, it's, when it's time to do deals, uh, is, it, is it something that, do old men ever change their minds? You know, can we really work in this atmosphere? Listen, uh, it, it does play, play a role. I mean, a difference in generations means a different of, of approach, different of, difference in values. So you're right, it's a strong, it's a strange trio of having two elder gentleman uh, with a much younger prime minister, but but it's political life, you know. Uh, uh, again, uh, I hear this possibility of your president running again, President Trump running again. We'll have 80-year-old octogenarian running. The, the, uh, you might like it, uh, I might not like it, but that's a reality. I mean, these these are our elected representatives. But personally, I like the, the idea of having um, younger men and women just for, for the energy it takes. I mean, these men have are facing tremendous pressure. Uh, listen, I'm 80 years old now. I know what it is to be 80 years old compared to 50 years old. Yeah. I was running around in Washington far more than I can now. So uh, <laughs> it's true for... for uh, I know, you our, look pretty great. For political leaders. Yeah. yeah. But well, I could be your dad. Yeah, I know what you mean. And you know, what's interesting <laughs> is thinking about leadership and age, you know, the Chilean... Yeah. Uh, Prime Minister Chris or President? Uh, president, I president think. President of Chile. Yeah. Um, I think his age begins with a three. Yeah. And so compared to Prime Minister Trudeau, who everybody thinks is the young guy, Prime Minister Trudeau is the elder statesman. The president of Chile is the new guy. And uh, they've struck up, I guess, a very good mm -hmm. friendship. And mm -hmm. and what, let me just... good. But I want actually. to talk later on about the Canada-U.S. relationship also. What, yeah. what has happened during the negotiation of the new uh, NAFTA and, and, and the mechanisms put in place? Well, if you're in... I'm, yeah, let's talk about that. And then I also want to talk about critical minerals and, and rare earths because that's a Canada-U.S. topic. Yeah. But but let's 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 stay on trade for a minute. What do you want to 
impart some wisdom on us, Ambassador. On trade? Yeah, NAFTA, the mechanisms. What do you want to talk about? Listen, uh, the, the new the Kusma, the new NAFTA, uh, yeah. was worked out after a great deal of difficulty. We were forced to the table, Mexico as well. We didn't like it. Uh, but an enormous time, amount of time and energy was dedicated to make it a success. In that period of time, and I must say I congratulate Ottawa for this, they have put in place a coalition that was very effective in, in making sure that our issues were, were dealt with. Uh, now it's in place, but we should not let go of that coalition. I mean, mm -hmm. we have to Green. be, we Canadians have to remain very vigilant when dealing with you guys. That's right. Uh, you know, it's we're the younger part, not the younger, but the, I mean, the less powerful partner in that equation. We have to be on our guard all the time. And I hope that this coalition uh, can be uh, revived very, very quickly if we need it. So I don't, we don't see it. It's not as obvious as in Canada as it was during the uh, Kusma negotiations, but that, that I think is, is very important. On, on the trade front, listen, uh, I mean, it's a huge part of our, of, our, uh, of our relationship. But my experience has been that our different, our uh, issues ultimately are always out. They will be resolved. Mm -hmm. Wh whatever it, lumber in due course will be resolved. Uh, L5 will be resolved, difficult mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. uh, whether, I mean, that's it's, the pipeline, the Enbridge pipeline. Yeah, Chris, line, five, line five, exactly, which we've uh, also talked about here. We have. And, and so you feel like, you feel like ultimately, ultimately these out. issues yeah. work out. So uh, I'm not too, too worried, but this is, these are the issues that take a lot of, uh, uh, get a lot of attention compared to what's going right in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Now we have these uh, common huge challenges. I, I'm glad to see that. Ottawa, for instance, the federal government on the issue of the war in, uh, between Russia and Russia has, has taken the right stand. I, I think that your president has, has been very good in this, in recreating the, 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 the coalition of the friends of NATO. Of NATO. This was kind of falling apart. He has uh, provoked the, the, just the, the, object, the opposite result of what Putin wanted. I mean, recreating NAFTA and, and this coalition. So that, that I, I, Canada has to be... Uh, uh, always vigilant about what I call the war and, and peace issues for the U.S. On that one, we are with you. When we have not been with you, whether it was Vietnam or Iraq, it gets to be complicated. But on, on the other hand, we're close. Canadians and Americans are close. Uh, if ever it comes, there comes a time when we cannot agree, uh, you have to agree with us that we, we, we cannot agree. Because if we cease to, to tell you what we consider is, is a valid point of view, then we seize, uh, we lose the right to be a sovereign country. You know, who right. the hell are we if we cannot say no when we, so. <laughs> right, sure. But, it, you know, it's, it's often said, and I know it's been said in some of the memoirs of presidents and prime ministers, that when they talk, mm. and, and I know you've been in the room or on the phone listening in, uh, that they often talk about the rest of the world, that the bilateral issues are not, you know, that important because... The Americans want to hear what the Canadian leaders think and vice versa. Is that has that been true? It, it, it was true uh, during my time here, and it's I'm sure it's still true now. Yeah. Because if, if you are uh, sitting in the, in the chair of your president, you know, he, lumber is, is, is not, he doesn't dream about lumber. He doesn't think about <laughs> lumber. Uh, you know, uh, the pipeline issue is important. That, that one you would know a bit more. But ultimately, when you, you come to those meetings, the American side always wants to discuss first the broad international issue. Still with time left to discuss our own bilateral mm. issues. But obviously, uh, they see, uh, they, they, they want Canada to be a partner. And uh, there were there was a time when we could do very useful work for, for, for the Americans where, where they could not do it, whether it was La Francophonie, the Commonwealth. We had access to a number of multilateral fora excluded for it. So 
this has been a good uh, partnership. But the, I'm, I'm, I see other countries. When I was here, I always felt that our access was among the f best five of, in the world. Five, six. I'm not sure we're there now. Hmm. Oh, interesting. That is well, interesting. we're coming to the end of this podcast, but but I want to I want to have you back, uh, and I want to talk when we come back about the world. Um, you previewed oh, that a little bit, but um, but with that, Chris, um, what a wonderful, enriching conversation, and how great to be in person with Ambassador. That was fantastic. Well, and and I think you said you know success has many fathers, and uh, you you were very nice to give credit to Lee Hamilton and others for credit for our institutions, but uh, you're our godfather, so it's nice to have you with us, the godfather of Canada in uh, in Washington. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, thank you uh, very much, Scotty. Chris, what a wonderful discussion. Such a distinguished public servant, a global thinker, uh, a wonderful Canadian. And to have it in person with Ramon Cartan, I just thought it was a treat. I thought it was amazing as well. And one thing that I always get from Ambassador Cartan is the sense that, yes, he has a famous uncle. But on the other hand, he, he built his career on, on real substance. He's not one of those patronage appointments where a little bit of nepotism gets, uh, you know, half rated person up. He he could have been prime minister. He could be secretary general of the UN. He is someone who just brings the substance. And he's seen so much of what has happened in Canada-US relations and around the world in recent years. Well, and I think uh, he cares deeply, right? He And it's, it's interesting to kind of walk a mile in his moccasins. You know, he's in Washington. He's seeing the security changes that we see uh, every day because we live here. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that affects him and that, you know, he worries about the United States. And I, I appreciate that. We, li we like to have our neighbors uh, checking in on us every once in a while. That's good policy in a neighborhood. I think it is. And I, I know sometimes it's awkward to hear criticism. And, you know, Americans can be nationalistic and a little defensive sometimes on these criticisms. But what makes Canada-U.S. relations great is that as friends, we're honest with each other. And I think he exemplifies that, you know, he doesn't go overboard, but he says, you know, this worries me. And I think Americans have always benefited when they listen to the Canadians speaking in friendship, but offering maybe a little bit of criticism sometimes. And we're a big enough country. We can take it. We can take it, but we better not criticize them back. That's one of the things I've learned. <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah, there you'd say uh, you'd say maybe Canusa Street sometimes is a one-way road. I guess. Uh, well, you and I are Americans. I think if anybody's gonna, we can criticize the United States, but if anybody's gonna criticize Canada, we we, we should leave it to the Canadians, and they can be self-reflective as well. And uh, fair. Uh, you know, actually, Ambassador Cratian really was on that as well. So mm -hmm. anyway, all in all, a great conversation, and it's always good to see you. Nice to see you as well. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.